Good, well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to, to talk to you about this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you one story two ways, if you see what I mean. I'm sure there's a famous film along those lines. But I'm going to tell you the story about how I think the debate about nanotechnology, and particularly the debate about public engagement in nanotechnology, has unfolded. And I'm going to first of all tell you that from my own point of view, I'll give you kind of you know a narrative of, of how I got involved in, in, in this kind of thing, and then I'll uh, uh, say a little bit about how I perceive how science studies people, if you like, have thought about it, and how policy people about, uh, have thought about it. And at the end, this will come together in one marvelous convergence or something. So I want to start by just uh, saying something about myself. I am a, a, a scientist, and I just want to stress, really, that this is actually how my scientific career went, and I'm just putting this up just to, to stress to you that this is an utterly uh, plain, vanilla scientific career. I Honestly, I didn't sneak off to do a degree in sociology at any point. I got a degree in physics in 1983, uh, I, I will confess, I did do a term of history and philosophy of science, which had kind of, kind of eight weeks that took me from Sextus Empiricus to Paul Feyerabend. And actually, you know, I very much enjoyed it, and it's actually been very helpful to me in, 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 in thinking about this. Uh, but nonetheless, it was, it, was, it was physics, really. I did a PhD in experimental polymer physics, and finished that in 1987. I went to the United States. I did a postdoc in an American university in a material science department. And this, I, I should say, I, I've got a terrible disciplinary, um, la lack of disciplinary roots because I, st I, I am a trained physicist, but I kind of half turned into a material scientist. And now I'm not quite sure whether I'm a nanotechnologist or not. And I, I, I suffer from terminal disciplinary rootlessness. But there we are. That's a good thing, actually, in my way. I'm a deviant physicist, actually, is how I introduce myself to people. And that seems to be fairly accurate, and as you'll see, it's got even more deviant. Um, then I just became a, an academic in, in, in a physics department in the UK University. That took me, I went there in 1989, so I slogged away being a, a junior a faculty person teaching physics, getting a research career going. Uh, in uh, 1997, I moved north to, uh, to, to where I currently am, which is Sheffield, and uh, uh, and I've been there ever since, doing the things that uh, academics and physics departments have to do. You know, I did my three years as head of department, let off for good behaviour. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of big development, I suppose, is that this, uh, for about a year I've, been in, uh, I've had a sort of part-time appointment with EPSRC advising them on the implementation of their nanotechnology policy. So this is the point at which, having thought about, uh, you know, having just been a uh, rank-and-file scientist all this time, now at this point I actually am starting to realise how science policy actually does work. So that's, you know, a, a very bare-bones CV, as I say, just to stress the fact that at no point uh, did, did, did I really take, take anything out from a kind of fairly standard academic career. But, of course... I, you know, right from the start, I think anybody who's operating in science should realise that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So I suppose, you know, one version of my scientific career would look like that. You know, if I, if, if, if I, um, you know, if I'm asked to prepare a CV, as it were, about, you know, what I think are the neat things I've done in science, 
there's a there's a bunch of them. You know, some some fairly dull-looking topics for well, they're dull to everybody else, but <coughs> fascinating to me, and uh, you know things that have. Uh, in the world of polymers and thin films and what polymer molecules do at surfaces. And, you know, and as I say, from the point of view of the, the discipline, if you like, the, that, that is, you know, if I meet an American polymer physicist, that's the stuff they know about from what I've done. But, of course, why did I do those particular subjects? Why, you know, you know what, what was it that took me through those, those trajectories? Of course, there were outside forces, and of course, the, the 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 biggest outside forces are money. You know, a, anybody who's a uh, who, who wants to be a successful academic knows the first thing you've got to do is you've got to you know you've got to feed your feed your graduate students and kind of pay the mortgages of your postdocs, and that means getting money, and that means uh, aligning to some extent with research council priorities. You know, what you, you, one swims with the fashions of the time to some extent, and also, and I suppose. Um, you know, perhaps the, 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 the timing of my career made this particularly obvious. I'm you know, starting an academic career in 1989, which was not a stunningly uh, wonderful time for British academia and British science in terms of the availability of funding. But, you know, one did what one could and one particularly went off and got uh, funding from companies. So much of this stuff... Uh, I, I've been funded by various companies, chemical companies, food companies, uh, agrochemical companies, pharmaceutical companies. So all these, now one can kind of look back at that, that set of scientific priorities and perhaps see them through slightly different eyes as being not necessarily things that are just uh, generated by a uh, by, by an academic, you know, by, by the process of academic priority setting that ha- that happens within a disciplinary field, but are reflecting, you know, the priorities that these companies have, and these companies themselves are reflecting priorities that they think society has. So at that point, one, it, it's very clear that it, that. that that one has to reflect society, and one is, you know, to some, to some extent, you know, being a tool of these forces that, 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 that drive science and society. And of course, on the other side of it, you know, hopefully there's some outputs from this. Those companies were hoping that uh, these academic studies would produce something useful. And so, if you, you know, one could say, how, what did they? What effect did they have? Well, you know, AstraZeneca gave me some money because they thought we could help them do some problems to do with drug delivery. Uh, some of the, the work I've done in phase separation in thin polymer films, I very much hope will have impact on cheap solar cells. So, you know, I put that up and it all kind of looks very... Uh, you know, things that I ought to be proud of. But then I remember the first time, I had a very good friend in ICI who I supported me for a long time and at one point he said to me, you know, Richard, you, you know, if you're ever wor- wondering what you've done, you know, what, what the work that you've done for us, what, you know, what impact that's had, I can tell you, it's allowed us to make better hobnob wrappers. We've completely solved a series of <laughs> important hobnob <laughs> problems. You know, Unilever, it was low-fat spreads for Unilever. So, you know, there are lots of quite surprising and um, not obvious things that uh, the way that your work gets, um, gets used. Anyway, so that's, that, that, that's the, the, my career as a polymer physicist, which I hope is still kind of coming, coming on. But uh, there, a word appeared sometime around nine, the late 90s. We had this idea of nanotechnology. Um, I suppose 
this was something that did happen sometime through the, the mid-90s, uh, that this idea that you'd be able to kind of do engineering on this nanoscale and make you know, functional devices that would do all kinds of wonderful things was something that really became prominent, uh, as I say, through the 90s. Now, the picture up there is a guy called Eric Drexler. And Eric Drexler is a figure that I now realise I, I have a kind of love-hate relationship with. Uh, I, have, I have met him, actually. He's actually an interesting guy. Uh, but in, 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 I think, 1986, Eric Drexler wrote a book called Engines of Creation, which really popularised a vision of nanotechnology that has kind of gone along with the subject, for better or worse, ever since. And he, he uh, conceptualised the subject as being, you know, shrinking down mechanical engineering to, 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 to the scale of atoms and molecules. So one's f- full of these kind of these pictures there that uh, illustrate some of these things. They're kind of schematic representations of gear wheels and things like this. And I suppose what, you know, because I was thinking about, you know, what molecules did, and I was actually also starting to think a little bit about biology and how, you know, biophysics, how, how biology worked. You, there was some mention of proteins and biopolymers and things. And so, really... I was interested in this idea, I was very interested in this idea, but on the other hand, I was quite sure that this was wrong. I mean, I was quite sure that this was utterly the wrong way to think about nanotechnology. And so I suppose that was my driving force for really thinking, stepping back from my discipline of, of, of um, polymer physics and you know, thinking about this rather broader area that was just starting to come into prominence. And uh, as I say, this... Drexler, I mean, Drexler's a fascinating figure in some ways, and and the more I think about it, the more I get interested in it, because um, he did have this idea that has been really not at all well-received by the scientific community, and yet it still has legs and it still runs. And I see that... um, if, if you know, he, he, it's from this, this, the, the, this set of notions that this whole idea of nanobots has arrived, which really uh, have just, I mean, I, I'd like to say plague discussions of the subject, but maybe I'm beginning to think even that's unfair, oh, that's too pejorative. But it, it's one of the things that makes nanotechnology so interesting is that it has a public profile which is not connected or not very closely connected to its scientific profile. So, for example, uh, you know, just this weekend, I see that you know, on the BBC News website, there's a thing from Kurtzfass saying, you know, we're going to have nanobots swimming around our brains. Uh, by 2027, we're going to have intelligent nanobots sp- swing, swimming around our brains that will be able to kind of download the contents of our memories and interface them to artificial computers and thus create a kind of true fusion of, uh, of man and machine. And of course, this is an idea that I think has absolutely no kind of scientific validity, but it's very current, and it's current for two reasons. One is that it's very... Um, it, it connects, it, it connects w- with a kind of well of... Science, uh, uh, sort of science fiction images that uh, are endlessly appealing, and I, you know, I, I was watching uh, a week ago on Sunday. I was watching as one does on Sunday morning Scooby Doo because my children were watching it, and there I am, Scooby Doo. It's it's been transformed. The new edition of Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo now eats Scooby snacks that have nanobots in, and that this results in canine enhancement. And of course, there was an evil scientist who had uh, who was exploiting his nanobots to. Uh, cover up his physical inadequacies and to make himself look more Californian and generally uh, um, 
well, clearly do bad things. And anyway, I had to the, the plot. I had to miss. I had to go and make the porridge. But I mean, it, was, it all it, it all went to a, you know, sort of a bad end at the end of it. But you know, the, there's something about these images that the, the, there's this kind of set of ideas in culture that are weird and obviously strong enough to be, to keep on coming back. And so that, that's uh, the, the slightly strange environment that uh, that this subject has got. Um, so, I mean, I mean that, that, that was really the driving force. So um, I was, uh, and then the driving force that many scientists have is the inner conviction that they're right and these other people are wrong. And so that's what drove me to, to, to write a book that set out why I thought this kind of mechanical vision of nanotechnology was wrong and why there should be, you know, a much more biological vision of it. And so that was a book that... Um, and that was uh, that I wrote, and it was published in 2004, and it's just come out in paperback. And it, as I say, it, the, the, the emphasis, I suppose, what I want to say is just that I wanted I, I wanted to write that book because I had a uh, uh, I thought I was right. I suppose is the answer. I, you know, I thought there was a message that was not getting across to the public that the public was being. Uh, sold a story about nanotechnology which wasn't right and so you know I wanted to make a reasoned argument about the, the way it was and uh, it was uh, writing the book was a, a, a good experience and I uh, as a result of writing the book I did many kind of uh, many sorts of um, other events I went and gave lectures at schools I gave lectures to you know, science cafes and um, uh, pretty much anywhere that I could persuade to let me in to give them a lecture about nanotechnology, I, I went. So this is, you know, as I say, my, my uh, uh, attempt to do my bit for public understanding of science by uh, taking what I thought was a, you know, a serious misconception about the future of science, setting out a different argument uh, and, and hoping, to, to, you know, hoping to move forward the argument in a slightly more public an expanded sphere, the, the normal disciplinary sphere. And in a sense, I was forced to do that because, you know, as a, as a polymer physicist, one, you know, as somebody in a kind of narrow disciplinary field, one has less opportunity to, to, to take a, a wider, you know, to make a wider argument. So, but around this time, I was also... So I was writing this book for the public. I was also actually thinking about teaching nanotechnology, and that's important too, because I think you know, it's an important function of academics that they teach students, and that's something that uh, one shouldn't forget. And so um, in, in the early 80s, we, Sheffield and Leeds had between them uh, bid to run an MSc course in nanotechnology, and I was one of the, the, the people, well, I was the lead person from Sheffield doing that. So I had thought, you know, how you know how would we make a subject that we'd teach? And in 2003, the ESRC, um, uh, I, I suppose, was hearing a lot of stuff in the ether about this nanotechnology stuff uh, that it might have a, a big impact. And again, this again co- comes back to the, the ways in which um, scientific ideas come into the public domain, which are obviously which are often not very um, not very clear at this time. Um, so sometime around here, there was, if you like, a great falling out between the scientific community and, and, and the direction of the right notions of nanotechnology. Up to the late 90s, actually, people in the scientific community 
you know, if I thought Drexler, well, it's a bit off the wall and it's all a bit futuristic, but, you know, it's, it's kind of all good stuff for keeping people interested. I think uh, there was an issue of Scientific American that had a very famous article by Richard Smalley and another article by George Whiteside really making the case that this was wrong. But... Uh, up until, I'd say, up until the late 90s, I think, there hadn't been that falling out. But what there had been, and this again is another interesting cultural subcurrent, if you like, is that there'd been this strand of thinking um, called by its adherents transhumanism. It's kind of quasi-religious movement that was really looking forward almost to you know, some kind of transcendent event as a result of technology. And so... In the context of that, there, were, there was a climate of very, very extreme opinions about what the nanotechnology would do. People were saying, well, nanotechnology, you'll be able to make anything you, you like from its constituent things. You know, the money economy will collapse because there'll be no shortages because you'll just have a desktop assembler that you'll just press a button and anything you like can be built from, 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 from just from the elements around in the air, you know, we'll be able to live forever, we'll be able to kind of um, abolish aging and death because we'll have cell by cell, molecule by molecule nanomedicine, we'll be able to have, you know, strong artificial intelligence and so eventually we'll kind of all just upload ourselves onto our iPods and disappear into a new plane. And it, and I say it was an uh, it's an interesting idea, and it's still actually current, and it underlies, uh, and it's one of these things that you can kind of like those you know mole gash bashing games that you know no matter how much you think this mole is bashed, it pops somewhere else, and that pops up somewhere else. And this is exactly my reaction yesterday, last night when I looked at the BBC News website, and I thought, oh my God, Kurzweil, he's at it again, um, and he still gets coverage in the paper. Um, so. It was really in that context that I got the opportunity to collaborate with social scientist Stephen Wood to write a report which hopefully was to try and pick out you know, what was plausible and what wasn't plausible about this new field of nanotechnology and what were the real issues and what weren't the real issues. And so that was uh, something, if you like, that took me away from merely thinking about um, what I thought the right science was into thinking, well what actually would be the implications of this science, what really are the implications, what are the real things that might one, one might, uh, might worry about. And then, so, and, and then I got um, my introduction not to, uh, having gone around and happily lectured to well-behaved audiences in the Hay, Hay Festival of Literature, and uh, <laughs> then I got this uh, strange... Uh, Notion. I got involved in this strange notion of this public engagement exercise, this kind of two-way dialogue. So in 2000, 2004, I guess, uh, Mark Welland at Cambridge, in the Cambridge IRC, had got, and he, he was the, the, the leader of the Cambridge IRC in nanotechnology, he, he, he got worried about you know, the, these questions of public perception. And he, uh, actually, I think in a very kind of, innovative and uh, brave way actually set aside some of his research money because this didn't come out of a, a, an engagement budget this came out of his research budget uh, he, he, he decided to, to, to sponsor a citizen's jury he did it with Greenpeace so uh, th th there was a, a campaigning NGO involved too and they decided to, to have a citizen's jury it was run by uh, the people at Newcastle uh, the, uh, Tom Waitford and his, his people at, uh, at Newcastle 
And so they decided to have the citizens' jury in Halifax uh, run over many weeks. It was quite a long process. And uh, I was asked to chair the Science Advisory Committee. So I did, and I thought this would just be kind of... I'd just have to kind of corner a few of my friends and tell them to go and give lectures about nanotechnology and they would all be kind of well received. And I suppose this was the moment at which I really learned this difference between public understanding and public engagement. And I have to say, in retrospect, this was still possibly the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire career and it was in many ways horrible. Uh, It was a very confrontational, it was set up in a very confrontational way and it was... um, uh, you know, I, I suppose really, a- absolutely, if one has the, you know, you get, one gets used as a scientist and a university lecturer to be able to lecture to people. That's unfortunately what the job is. And it was very clear that this is not how this was going to work. But nonetheless, I think it was, uh, I, I, having done it, I did learn a huge amount from it. And I think that. The, the results of it were really very interesting. I'll actually talk about them later. <coughs> so that's where how I came to it. Now I want to talk about, you know, now, now I want the kind of the, the, the parallel process. How how do I think this subject's developed? Well, again, I think there's this trajectory from public understanding of science to public engagement, and so uh, people in the trade always refer with uh, great reverence, no, not with great reverence, they, this, this, this report, released by the Royal Society in 1985, is always believed to be this landmark, the public understanding of science. And this was motivated, really, by observations of public scientific illiteracy. And uh, if you... Uh, th- this, is th- th- this notion of public scientific illiteracy is one that's immensely current, and I'm quite sure that if you go into the... Uh, the, uh, the, the, the common room of any university science department in the country and start up, you know, after you've gone through the shortcomings of the students, the stupidity of the public will be kind of number two on the list of well-known conversations in, in, in the common room. So the, uh, the, the, the recommendation of the Bodmer Report, which again, you know, again one has to think of the context. 1985 was not a happy time for UK science. It was feeling very embattled, very undervalued. And... Uh, the recommendation was that the, these activities, public understandings of, uh, of science activities, ought to be carried on to increase public knowledge of science, past, partly to improve the basic competence of the citizenry, citizenry as you know, was said in this rather uh, uh, condescending way, but also particularly to promote public support for government R&D expenditure. And I think you know, that's, that was an explicit, I think a pretty explicit uh, um, motivation at the beginning. But... There was a very influential critique of this movement, particularly in one mentions, maybe this is perhaps my very partial view of it, the people I've talked to, but uh, this very influential critique of this came from uh, Brian Wynne and his colleagues at Lancaster, which really identified or caricatured the PUS movement as something that invoked a deficit model. That essentially, the, the public had a deficit of scientific knowledge. Uh, if you righted that deficit by pouring in more knowledge from the top, then they would um, realise that the scales would fall from their eyes and they would realise that science is really great and ought to be funded more. And they'd support, support it. 
And I think it's also fair to say that in the UK context, the deficit model really was tested to destruction in the, the, the debates about particularly BSC and, and GM food that, that, that were going on in the UK. So uh, this led, as I say, that the, the, the calls of the, um, uh, the, the, the Lancaster group in particular, other, other people too, but they were particularly prominent, called for this greater reflexivity of, you know, with, by scientists in two-way engagement. And this idea that, you know, that the way to do this was actually to have upstream engagement before issues became controversial. And so this was made very uh, explicit in this the, the, this pamphlet from Demos from James Wilsden and Becky, uh, Becky Willis who uh, wrote this pamphlet which is essentially you know, a popularisation of the Lancaster way of thinking that, that was, it turned out I think to be enormously influential and really uh, set the, the, the agenda for this idea of upstream engagement well here we are and here's now, now how did nanotechnology enter well in 2003, a very successful campaigning group uh, called uh, Etc. Group, which emerged in something called RAFI, uh, this is a bunch of activists who cut their teeth in the GM debate and they'd seized on nanotechnology as being the next, um, the, the, the next big thing. And uh, they, although the Etc. Group constitutes about four people and a dog, they are immensely effective at uh, changing the terms of the debate. And uh, actually, the, the, the figure who really managed to intervene to change that debate was, was Prince Charles. And uh, it, these things are not unconnected. And it, uh, th- Well, I have seen it written with what authority, I'm not entirely sure. The, the connection between this was the etc. group... Um, critique of nanotechnology was conveyed to Prince Charles uh, via Zach Goldsmith who at the Times editor of the Ecologist magazine and was a, um, uh, um, was in contact with the, 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 the etc. people anyway this was a very um, uh, effective intervention in terms of raising the, pro- the profile of the subject and it was really I think in, in response to that that uh, the Royal Society, the government, commissioned the Royal Society and the Royal Academy of Engineering to put together this report, Nanoscience and Nanotechnology Opportunities and Uncertainties. And this was interesting. It it involved not just scientists, but it introduced uh, social scientists and philosophers to the debate and also explicitly at the outset introduced representatives of NGOs and it did have some kind of public engagement. And the key, from the point of view of this discussion, the key thing that they said was that uh, there should be, that it really, the, the, the kind of upstream engagement line was completely accepted, really, or taken on board completely by the Royal Society panel, and uh, this call for a constructive and proactive debate before positions got entrenched took place. So the government, um, the government ignored most things about the Royal Society report. They didn't actually ignore this one. Um, they uh, pretty much implicitly accepted this critique. They published this policy in August 2005, published some, uh, uh, funded some public engagement activities, and they uh, charged a, a, a body, Nanotechnology Engagement Group, to sort out what was going on, collate all the lessons from all the public engagement that was going on, 
and, uh, and, and to, to, to spread that best, best practice. The nanotechnology, and, oh, I'll, I'll skip over that. So that's, that's what the government said the aspirations for. It was an interesting mixture, actually, of this. Is, so these are the government's words, and it's an interesting mixture of acceptance of the, some implicit survival of the deficit model, if you like, by this thing, you know, establish and maintain public confidence, combined with a, uh, an acceptance of the critique of the deficit model and this idea of science community exploring together with the public, this idea of engagement and reflexivity rather than uh, one-way communication. Here are some of the, uh, um, the, 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 um, the, the activities. So Nanajury UK, which I mentioned, which was my own personal baptism of fire into this business. This cost £45,000 or so. It's quite large scale, eight evening sessions. It's done in Halifax. Was actually, you know, one of the many good things about it was that it was a very demographically balanced um, uh, uh, process. But it did have a very adversarial structure, if you like, uh, six witnesses, three of whom were definitely four nano and three were against. Well, it was set up that way, but that, that always seemed to be very unfair, actually, because it's not, well, it's not actually obvious that the scientific witnesses ought to be in favour of nano. You know, they, they're the people who perhaps have some particular view of it, but doing it in that uh, um, adversarial way, I think, was, uh, was one of the things that was not so good about it. And it had recommendations uh, it launched in 2005. Demos and Lancaster ran these nano dialogues. This was a government-funded exercise. Four different of the four different public engagement ac- activities. One of them, which I think worked particularly well, was with the Environment Agency, the so-called People's Inquiry into Nanotech. Anyway, so there are a number of the, these things going on. What's it all? What, what did we learn from all this? Well, actually, we, we learned, I think, some fairly consistent things. We found that uh, there was no real evidence of any... I mean, first of all, there was not actually a lot of evidence that there was a great deal of um, appreciation of nanotechnology in the wider public at all. But there was certainly no evidence of a backlash against the technology. And on the contrary, there was actually quite a lot of excitement about nanotechnology's potential, particularly clean energy and the environment, healthcare and medical applications. Also, perhaps surprising... It's actually surprising if you spent too much time in in an academic environment that arguments that nanotechnology will lead to new economic opportunities and uh, uh, and new jobs are actually pretty resonant in quite a lot of sections of the public. Uh, But there are concerns about safety and toxicity and a general concern which really affects not... It's nothing to do with nanotechnology, but when people sit down to think about technology in general, what always comes out, I think is a concern about who's controlling and regulating it. And actually this concern gets more and more pronounced the more the public understands science, because the more the public understand the social institutional structure of science, the more they realise that actually nobody controls this technology at all. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it does have this kind of emergent, self-driven quality, which is one of the reasons why it works so well, but it's also one of the reasons why it's so frightening. Uh, none of this stuff was easy, and I think you know what we learned from all those things were that it was very easy to, to say, well, we we need to do some public engagement without thinking through why you're doing it, what's the role of it, where the message is going to go. Uh, I'm, I'll talk about institutional capacity. Another, you know, a, a well-known 
critique of this kind of engagement activity is that it amounts to a kind of whitewash. You decide, to, you know, you, you think of what you want to do, you have a citizen's jury and you get them to agree and then you do what you're going to do anyway. So the question about how you actually build in this as something that can make a meaningful difference in the way that institutions make decisions is something that's difficult. Of course, there's this question of reach. You know, Nanojury UK spent £45,000 and 15 people emerged very well educated about nanotechnology at the end of it. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's a, a, that's a sum that many sceptical um, uh, policymakers readily do. But there's a, a, an, another very interesting and fundamental problem that comes really from this idea of moving upstream. It's great to, to, to move, to, to say we're going to talk about a technology before it's really come to fruition, before opinions have hardened. But, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. I mean, many of the discussions about nanotechnology have floundered in the midst of uncertainty about what the technology actually is, where it's going. Scientists disagree about what it's going to look like in 15 or 20 years. So the more upstream you go, the more interesting the discussion gets in some ways, and the more opportunity you have of shaping the way that the, the science evolves. But on the other hand, the more difficult the discussion gets, because it gets less concrete. So now, as I say, I've, this is now where I draw together the two strands of my talk. There's, we talked about institutional structures, and I think one needs to have a fairly, uh, you, you know, one has to understand how science institutions work in the first place before you can understand uh, what, what public engagement might do. So this is my kind of sketch of how EPSRC, the major funding agency in the UK, uh, makes decisions. And make, you know, this is the, the, the institution that funds most nanotechnology-related research in the UK. So roughly speaking, you've got on the left-hand side uh, <coughs> structures that offer advice. You've got on the right-hand side the way that policies are executed. And in the middle, you've got the, the, the chair and the council, who are the kind of the, the governance, the people in charge of the governance of it. So advice really comes in two streams. You've got a technical opportunities panel. What this means is this is a bunch of scientists who, you know, eminent scientists who are selected and they're shoved into a room and they come up and say, well, we think, you know, the very cool pieces of science are DNA, nanotechnology or, you know, quantum dots or quantum information. You know, th th this is what we think science is going to, you know, this is the real exciting science. And then you've got the user panel, which is essentially a bunch of people from industry. So th th these are people from British Aerospace or GlaxoSmithKline or whatever saying, well, you know, we see that, uh, that industry is going to require smaller sensors and, uh, you know, better uh, diagnostics or whatever, you know, what industry wants, if you like. And so those are the two advice streams. Uh, and they go into the council. The chief executive uh, runs the organisation. And there's one directorate of it, the, the research and innovation directorate, which is basically the thing that gives the money out. So the, the, the top and up make, this, make their recommendations. Council, you know, at some point, some priority programme emerges. People decide, well, we need to do... Uh, a, a big program in magnetic materials to make better storage devices or whatever, and then that's the, the research and innovation directorate gets given uh, the instructions, well, you know, here's 30 million quid, go and spend it on this priority area. Meanwhile, you've got 
another directorate planning and communication. And that's where public engagement lives, because public engagement in this old model is really conceptualised as being a branch of public relations. So you've got the press office who sends out the press releases and uh, they, they, they mount some public engagement activities. So, of course, this then makes it completely clear that this is an institutional structure that cannot possibly... Uh, do public engagement in a way that actually has any influence on policy because it's just they're they're different branches of the organisation they don't talk to each other so where we've got to now which is starting to operate is uh, is sketched here uh, about a year and a half ago EPSRC established a new panel which in principle has the same status as the user panel and the technical opportunities panel which is the so-called societal issues panel which is, you know, you can conceptualise that as being, you know, what society wants and that's chaired by Robert Winston and full of uh, distinguished social scientists and uh, that sort of thing and uh, moral philosophers, all sorts of interesting people and what we're left with then is this, uh, this now does give us the, the, the opportunity to draw that line back from the public engagement and try and actually put public engagement uh, back into, into some way of um, giving advice to council. And so this is evolving and we're, we're, we're going to see how it works. Uh, In a sense, I just want to say this. This is one of the the comments that I think are very useful set of comments that came out of the Now Technology Engagement Group report. I've just stressed how important it is to kind of connect up public engagement and policy. But I think there's a real um, tendency to think that public engagement is about producing a set of recommendations, that, uh, that, that, that you ask the public, do you want to spend money on, uh, on having kind of nutraceutical laden yogurt or uh, uh, in situ heart, uh, you know, heart tests or whatever. You know, giving them uh, a, 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 a limited set of options and getting a set of priorities. But actually, I think um, there is a, one shouldn't forget the more general institutional case or that this actually really is, these are things that really people who do them really emerge, change from them. And I think that that goes both for the members of the public who are involved. One of the really interesting things about the Nanotechnology Engagement Group launch that happened last summer was that people from who'd been involved both in the original NanoJury UK and in the, uh, uh, the, the Nano Dialogues project, they came down to talk about their experiences. And it was really, you know, really quite touching and moving to that the, 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 these experiences of being involved in this kind of discussion really had changed the way they thought about not just science but, uh, <coughs> but technology as a whole. And I think, you know, for all I complained about what a miserable time I had during NanoJury UK, it was undoubtedly something that really completely changed the way that I thought about how to communicate science and indeed what the, what the relationship between science and society was. So uh, th- these, I think, are really important, um, really important general um, selling point, general reasons for, for, for doing this stuff. And I think it's quite sort of difficult. I mean, these are the things that one has to have in the back of one's mind when one's being challenged about, you know, the value for money of these things because certainly one does get challenged about the value for money of them. So where does that leave me? Well, I personally, I'm now, you know, having... 
thought about uh, how policy, science policy is made and no doubt complained about it. Now I'm sort of quite close to understanding how science policy is made and it's uh, very interesting and informative. We do have a formal uh, place for public engagement in, in, in science policy making now, at least in EPSRC, and it's going to be extremely interesting to see how that works and how, uh, how that plays out because, you know, it's, it should be obvious that these views are not going to be universally accepted. They're people who are not going to appreciate this, um, this way of thinking about science. A very concrete thing that we're doing is that we're having a grand challenge on, uh, on nanomedicine. Uh, this will be, uh, this is a call for eight to ten million pounds. And so, uh, EPSRC has agreed to, to run a, a public engagement exercise that will be connected with that grand challenge and will be formally incorporated into the decision making process, if you like. So, it will be, uh, the, the input from that will be taken together with input from the scientific community and the user community as a, uh, a factor in deciding how to spend the money. So that's going to be, I think, a very interesting and actually rather exciting experiment. I don't think that anyone else anywhere in the world has actually done that yet. And I, I look forward to, well, with a certain amount of trepidation, but uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that works. So that's really uh, the, the, the strange journey that's taken me from being a... a, a well, I, 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 as I, say, I hope I still am actually a polymer physicist, really, and I still have a research group. But uh, uh, I've had the opportunity to think much more widely about how um, science and society should interact. I've had the opportunity to think, to, to, to understand, you know, what the difference between public understanding and public engagement is. Uh, it's been fascinating and very rewarding. And for those of you who are um, Starting or getting going on a scientific career now, I really would uh, urge you to take this stuff very seriously. It's very interesting, and I think thinking about it will make you better scientists as well as uh, 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 be good for the scientific community as a whole. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Extremely interesting yeah, lecture. We have a uh, short time for questions. Uh, well, I have a quick question. In your experience during the citizen panel, <clears throat> do you did you notice any any lack of public understanding on the science because they were lacking uh, some knowledge in probability and statistics on how to evaluate the the results? From research, because because I think uh, as far as I've been able to see, people can understand fairly complex concepts, and and they and because they are not constrained by by a set of mind um, that is uh, prevalent on the on the small circle of researchers that work in a particular theme, they can actually come up with new ideas and etc. But but to really uh, appreciate or assess the importance of certain data, I've, I've seen that there is a prevalent lack of understanding of statistics and, and probability. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, most people don't know very much mathematics. Full stop. End of story. That's uh, uh, that's how it is, <laughs> and it's. 
um, you know, it's one's duty to, to engage people drawing on the experiences that they have Mm-hmm. Connecting things to, to, to the experiences and the way that they think about things, and that that's a hard lesson for many scientists because all the kind of mental props that you have about thinking of things, one, one can't really use them. And of course, you know, one has to stress that you know there are many, many different. You know, one talks about the public, which is a very bad thing to do because there are of course many, many different types of publics, all of whom yeah, come yeah, with yeah, different course, views, and you know. It, 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 whoever you, you know, whichever set you talk to, it'll come out differently. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's absolutely one cannot expect to have any success at all if one takes a particularly mathematical approach to things. And that's you know, a challenge that you have in dealing with complex issues in ways that don't can't draw upon the reserves that we have. Okay. I wanted to ask on your um, societal issues panel whether they are lay representatives or whether they are moral philosophers and sociologists and the good and the great from from academia. Yes, no, they are the good and great from academia. That's right. There, there, there are. I, I mean, this is an interesting issue, and so, so uh, there, there are different views about this. I mean, there, there is. I mean, there's a there's a widespread view that if you have lay representatives on panels like that, they don't stay lay very long, and I think that's the sort of that, that that's been well, undoubtedly convenience as well. But I think that's that, that that was underlying that thinking. And I think it's not. I think it was a decision not to, and I think that was the thinking behind it. And whether that's right or not, I don't know. Okay, and you highlighted the importance of the impact on the participants. And you talked about there was just these 15 participants. Well, I mean, from the Open University's point of view, one of the interests I have is you know, one of the opportunities for much larger scale public engagement using kind of new technologies, new com- methods of communication, or broadcasting, and engaging with, with people. I just wondered if you had any opinions on, on how that can be used. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I did mention, you know, one of the things that I did after I'd, after I'd, I'd written the book was, you know, because I'm a modern person, of course, and I have a blog. And it's, you know, I'm actually very proud of it because, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of gets up to, you know, 1,500, 2,000 visits a day, and I'm kind of quite, quite pleased with that. And, you know, it has that scope for interactivity. But on the other hand, it's 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 not always clear who the audience is, and sometimes, it, well, actually, sometimes it's all too clear who the audience is. <laughs> Maybe that's not what, what the part of the issue is about managing it so that there is kind of the engagement, which is, as you said, demographically balanced, as it was with the case of the fifteen. Yeah. That, that, that there aren't influences from pressure groups that, that affect the outcome. Yeah. I mean, it's very different. It's very difficult. I mean, because essentially, the, most people are not interested in nanotechnology, and why should they be? There's lots of other stuff to be interested in. I don't hold it against them that they're not. But on the other hand, those are precisely the people that one would want to reach. So, in some senses, those things that depend on an opt-in, like a uh, uh, 
you know, like, like participating on a blog or a, you know, a message board, mm. that, 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 that makes it difficult. So, I, I mean, clearly, there must be huge potential. I would love to, to understand what it was, and it would be really good fun to try and work out how to do that better. Are we just about to start on some kind of online public engagement around alternative therapies and conventional medicines, which will also have some public events as well. So yes. hopefully we'll learn something of how that works from that. Yeah, no, I, I, mean, so, I, I, mean, I, I love my blog really, but occasionally I kind of want to hide under the duvet when I'm kind of under an assault <laughs> from the Drexlerites. And <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, um, um, one of the arguments often used against science to get involved in engagement is that there's not a lot in it for them. I mean, these days of RE, etc., it's often said, so, well, we'd be interested to do it, but we don't think it's such a priority. But in the end, I guess almost a throwaway remark, he said something very interesting about making you a better scientist. And that's such an important argument, and it's not one that you hear very often. Yes. I wonder if you could just say some more about how it is that you think this kind of activity actually makes you better as a scientist. Well, because it, it gives you a wider, you know, what scientists, what you need to be to be a good scientist is to have original and cool ideas that you can execute. And, you know, it's utterly wrong, of course, to imagine that scientists get all their original and cool ideas by a process of, you know, having lots of baths or going for woodland walks or whatever. They kind of come in from nowhere. They come in from interactions from other places. Where they come in is primarily interactions with the scientific community. So you get other ideas by reading papers and going to conferences and talking to your, your fellow scientists. And those are very good ideas, but generally not terribly original because if they were, you know, they're the thing that's you know what constitutes normal science, if you like, is seeing oh, I've got some little opportunity to to do something that that person hadn't quite thought of and take things a bit further. You have inputs from commercial operations, uh, you know, from companies, and you know, for all I was uh, vaguely rude about hobnob wrappers, I would say actually those things are really important, trivial everyday problems, the kind that you know a Unilever or a PNG or come across I think are really interesting and I wouldn't want to say that I don't think they're important because actually they are and so actually the, the uh, in, in fact you know my most highly cited paper came from a conversation with somebody at ICI saying you know we're having a problem rolling up our, our films and you know it was thinking about what that problem was you know trying to reframe a kind of process problem as a scientific problem that was, you know, that was very good because it, it it made me go off and do an experiment that nobody else had thought of doing, and it made me, you know, think of a problem that nobody else had thought of, uh, uh, of looking at, and it turned out to be a very interesting and important one that has, you know, probably the, the single most biggest factor in my, you know, my. my Scientific career as you know, a pure science achievement. So, you know that's that, that's what you get from there. And I think you will get the same sorts of things from off the wall suggestions from from people from, from the public. So I think you know it's a sort it's a source of ideas. I mean I think scientists ought to talk to all kinds of different people all the time. John. 
play devil's advocate, say something I don't really agree with. How do you respond to people say, well, we have MPs and democratic institutions, and we vote for these people, they should make these decisions. What's the point of setting up all these glorified quangos inviting high moral philosophers in to comment on scientific research? How do you respond to that, that sort of idea? Uh, yeah, no, it's an interesting one. I, I actually heard it. But exceptionally, kind of virulently phrased by Evan Harris, in fact. And I thought, oh yeah, the Liberal Democrats, what are they? <laughs> uh, um, I, think, I, I, mean, I think it's a very unrealistic argument. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, you know, um, these issues are very low down the list of priorities of popular politicians, and rightly so, frankly. I mean, I, I think, to be, to be honest, I probably would be worried if. Uh, if, um, if politicians were, were, were thinking, spending all their time thinking about what was going to happen in 2025, well, they ought to think about that a little bit. But it's, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, demands on them, a lot of immediate problems. And more particularly, I mean, it's not obvious why the reward system that politicians have would reward thinking about long-term, indeterminate, mm-hmm. somewhat open-ended problems like this. Um, I, I mean, I, it, it is actually a really interesting question because and, I, mean, I, I can't actually answer it without saying something about what I think about politics. And I suppose, you know, what, what's come to me, again, this comes back to my my love-hate relationship with the Drexlerites and the transhumanists and these kind of fringe movements is actually they make clear although I think they're bonkers in almost all ways they make clear that this what we're talking about here is you know how you, how we're going to live what society is going to look like in 20 you know, you know in 20 years time or whenever often and you know that is fundamentally the problem of politics but it's not a is that a question that you ever hear asked by politicians? Not ever. No, you know, people, we have a consensus about, you know, how things ought to be, how the system ought to be arranged, which is not really, uh, which doesn't really reflect a very wide range of possibilities, does it? So that's why I think it's these, these problems are <coughs> too important to be left to representative democratic politics but you know it's a it's a, 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 an important tension and I think you know at some point it's going to come and someone's going to articulate it somebody powerful is going to articulate mm-hmm. it rather clearly and that will be mm-hmm. okay uh, I'm going to take one more from David and then I think we'll probably have to back off those <coughs> I know Richard's going to have to get off um, yes, I wondered if you had any comments about uh, the situation in other countries, um, and in particular Japan, possibly, because my understanding is that they're throwing huge amounts of money at nanotechnology research. And I just wondered whether their public engagement um, agenda had, had moved further forward, or they're just doing the research and no one. It, it, in terms of society, yeah, I, I, it's an interesting question. I think that the situation is that they are they are spending lots of money on research, but they are they are aware of the issue of public engagement, and I think there have been some meetings in the Royal Society actually that I think have really, you know, and, and my understanding from I didn't go to them, but Mark Welland I think was involved in some of those, and he, you know, he came back saying, well, actually they do see the point of this, but they don't quite know how to do it, and it's. You know, their, their, their cultural conditions are, are, are very difficult. 
and there's actually I, I, there's an article I was recently reading it from some, from some Japanese uh, workers in this area that makes some interesting points one of which is actually this is one of these things that sounds that's too good to be true that they say we don't like to talk about it because in Japanese we translate risk and danger to the same word and so one never wants to talk about risk because it just sounds like dangerous but I don't know whether that's true or not uh, so I think the Japanese are kind of thinking it might be interesting but aren't doing anything I think Koreans are probably not interested at all. Koreans are really spending huge sums of money on you know, they're, they're pushing this very hard and I think they have no interest at all in public engagement or any kind of societal impacts. Um, the United States has been spending a lot of money, you know, they've been spending a lot of money on um, ELSA studies as they say, so on, you know, uh, create, job creation scheme for nanoethicists, as someone has kindly put it. Uh, there has been some public engagement, but I don't sense that there's any will to make any kind of institutional connections. Uh, and at various um, the French have been doing some, the Germans have been doing some, the Scandinavians have been doing some. So it, it, the, the, the picture's patchy. I have to ask you one last question. I'm going to take chair for Given what you've told us, given everything you've done so far, can you imagine going back to working the way you did before you done that nature and before EPS got changed in a kind of pre-public engagement way? Can you imagine moving back to that from here? I think I'd find it quite boring. I've got a notoriously short attention span, so maybe I was just destined to... Deviate. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh, thank you again, Richard, for coming along. What uh, what people don't know here is that uh, Richard's had an absolutely frantic schedule to make it here today, um, and I'm extremely grateful for him to come along. And uh, has another frantic schedule to make um, when he leaves us here. So with that, I think we should move to have some food. Um, to thank you again for coming along, and to look forward to the next couple of days for those of you who are in the course. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.